Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome. Unfold your velvet seat. Programs are in the foyer and there will be someone coming round during the interval with pots of ice cream. Why, you may ask? Because this is out to lunch and today I'll be dining with a theatre and cinema legend. In the West End, he's had enormous success with plays such as Plenty, later made into a movie with Meryl Streep, Racing Demon, Skylight, Pravda and Amy's View. He was virtually a writer in residence at the National Theatre for a number of years and has won numerous awards and was even nominated for the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for the Hours. Today, we discuss what it was like having lunch with Alfred Hitchcock, who should be writing for the theatre these days, and the art of directing big-name actors. It is the wonderful Sir David Hare. I was expected to win the Oscar for writing The Hours, and I went to Hollywood, and Steven Spielberg said to me, everybody knows that you've written the best film of the year. And as he said it, he looked at the ground. Which right? means he hadn't and voted I thought, for you. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I haven't got Steven Spielberg's vote then. So for this episode of Out to Lunch, I have brought David Hare to Noble Rot in Soho. It's a new restaurant occupying the site of a very, very old restaurant. And this is, well, this is key. So the old restaurant was called the Gay Hazar. Um, it was launched by a Hungarian emigre called Victor Sassi, um, served Hungarian food, food, borscht and, you know, roast goose and that sort of thing. And it was, in its time, the clubhouse for the British left. And David Hare has very much written about the trials and tribulations of the British left. So although the Gay Uzar is no longer here and it's now Noble Rot, it felt like the right place. The name Noble Rot is an interesting one. It, it, they started with a, a wine magazine called Noble Rot. Anyway, it then led to a restaurant called Noble Rot over on Lamb's Conduit Street in Hoban. And now they have this one in Soho on the site of, as I say, what was the Gay Uzar. Uh, we have the private dining room on the very top floor of a Soho townhouse. And I think we're going to be fed very, very well. Incredible. It's just like we eat all the time. Yes, David. I, I, uh, so they always keep a room for you. They do. We do this. We, we are going to get into the food, but I have to ask you before we get to the menu here at Noble Rock. You once dined with Hitchcock, didn't you? Yeah. What happened? I did dine with Alfred Hitchcock because I was running the Cambridge Film Society, or rather I was secretary, and the president asked Alfred Hitchcock to come to lunch in Cambridge. And... You know, I was very insulted when years later, in his biography, the biographer said Alfred Hitchcock's fortunes were so low that he even accepted an invitation from the Cambridge Film Society, meaning he would never have done it after Psycho. It was probably around the time of Family Plot or something not very successful. 
And he came and we were eating in the garden house, which later became very well known because of the garden house riots. And he was just sparklingly entertaining and hilarious. And so these films that I now see, which represent him as sinister, misogynist, kinky, sadistic, I, I, I simply don't recognize the man that we all met that day. There were women at the table to whom he was courteous. He was just a delightful company. And of course, his anecdotes had been polished to a hue. They were marvelous. But the funny thing was he was on a diet and he said to the waiter, um, I'll just have one slice maybe of rare roast beef. That'll, that'll be all. Um, but, you know, then just before the waiter, but if you could serve it with a baked potato and, you know, was it, are, there, are there any, you know, and it went on like this. Um, he did talk for four or five hours. And were you a good audience? It's a dream, isn't it? To sit and listen to a great filmmaker. But what a privilege. Were they things that you've actually kept in your mind when you have ended up as director of movies? No, the, the most striking thing he said was niceness is a quality in an actor that cannot be faked. And he said, the world took Grace Kelly to its heart because Grace Kelly was indeed a lovable and wonderful woman. And I said, oh, I see, it's a sort of, it's a sort of moral quality, is it? And he said, there's only one actor in the world who is good enough to fake niceness, who you believe to be nice, but who actually isn't a very nice person. Well, I have a name in my head, but I'm, I'm curious to see who it is. He said, go ahead, guess who you think it is. All right. Do I have to? Yeah. Is it Cary Grant? Hey, totally. <laughs> I said, well, it's got to be Cary Grant. And he said, I'm so disappointed that you know. I said, he is nice, Cary Grant, but the whole... It, the whole appeal of Cary Grant is that he's also a tiny bit sinister at the same time. And there's an edge to his niceness that there isn't, say, to, to, to you know, I've met Gregory Peck. If we were having lunch today with Gregory Peck, he is exactly what you would expect Gregory Peck to be. He's just absolutely, he was charm itself. So by that standard, is Bill Nye who you have yeah. cast, I don't know whether you've written for him, but on yeah. a number of cases you actively have. Yeah. And he's played a certain kind of role invoking decency. Is he that decent yeah. man? Yeah, he's a wonderful man. And indeed, you know, it, there was a night when we were filming at night, at, in the middle of the night, at two o'clock in the morning. The word has gone round, Bill Nye is in the Market Square, you know, and there's queues of people for selfies, signatures, all this. And I had to say to him, Bill, you have to stop. We actually have to also film. And he does it because he really, really genuinely wants to talk to people, appreciates what they say to him. He is the most accessible actor I know in terms of just, it's no imposition for him. Um, shall we have a look at the menus as we are yeah. we, It is out to lunch and we're here. Well, James right. is here to take an order. So you, you go first and then I'll fill in the gaps. I'm gonna have the rabbit as a main course and I want to try these shoe buns. Yeah, of course. How many would you like? Uh, well, what do you think? How many does so a human I, being need? I would say two. Two say will two. do it. I don't need a first course. I'll eat, I'll, do, I'll eat the shoe buns as a first course. And I'll have the sea bass yeah. with cucumber, fennel and almonds, and then the lamb. The lamb chops with black olives and ratatouille. It's a lovely menu. So, David, we are in Noble Rot, and we're on the site 
of what used to be a very famous restaurant. It was almost the British left's clubhouse, the Gay Hazar. And I think it almost impossible that you didn't eat here. No, I did eat here, but I'm not really old enough to be part of that generation. You know, I think of it much more as Michael Foote and Richard Crossman. The traditional left ate here in the 60s and 70s. By the time I came here, which was probably mid-1980s, early 90s, you know, I was embedded, as you journalists say, um, with the Labour Party during the election campaign of 92. Yeah. Yeah. So that I was embedded in order to write a play. So it was Robin Cook and it was Roy Hattersley and it was Neil Kinnock and it was Harriet Harman, Margaret Beckett and it was Peter Mandelson. Oh, and then I have to ask a pure gossipy question. If you were embedded, were you in Sheffield the night of the infamous yeah, rally? I was indeed. For younger listeners, there is a moment where Neil Kinnock goes on stage at Sheffield and it feels like Neil Kinnock almost loses it in the mood and starts shouting, well, all right, like an American game show host on the stage. Yes, but the interesting thing is, if you were in the hall, it wasn't too bad. (laughs) And nobody in the hall called it. But then by the time it went on the 10 o'clock news, everybody was in in deep panic. Because he looked like an idiot. It was a famous moment in which a lot of people thought was the thing that finally ruined it for him. I think Neil would say that he didn't ever in his heart believe it. And he said this interesting thing about the way people look at you and they look down rather than look you in the eye, and it means they're not going to vote for you. Right. And it was interesting because in my own life, I, I was expected to win the Oscar for writing The Hours, and I went to Hollywood, and Steven Spielberg said to me, everybody knows that you've written the best film of the year, and as he said it, he looked at the ground. Which right? means he hadn't voted and thought, for you. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I haven't got Steven Spielberg's vote then. Food feature has featured in your work as well, in Skylight. Yeah. Um, well, that's very controversial. It's a great test of a director because there are two different kinds of director. The original production was directed by Richard Eyre with Michael Gambon and Leah Williams. And Richard Eyre said, there is only one correct way to make spaghetti bolognese. And he ordered Leah to make it in exactly the way that Richard dictated as director. I have to ask you, what did it say in your script? What did you write? She makes spaghetti bolognese. Yeah. You didn't include a recipe. No, I don't. Well, that's a bit of an oversight. No. Uh, and then, so. then when the play was revived with Carey Mulligan and um, Bill Nye, with Stephen Daldry directing, Stephen Daldry said, I have absolutely no idea how to make spaghetti bolognese. I will get the chef from some Italian restaurant who came and, of course, told us that we put sausage in it. Did you know that? Yes. Basically, it's a, it's a ragu. Um, in Italy, there is no such thing. Yeah. So... The, oh, there is no spaghetti from Bologna. Well, uh, no, they, they, Bologna. They wouldn't ever say spaghetti bolognese. They would just say it's pasta with ragu. Um, but the ragu from Bologna... There are a variety of recipes, quite a lot of which don't include any beef at all. It would be veal. And does it always have a sausage in it? Quite often. Okay. But even even in Bologna, they're going to argue over it. If you you make a dish on stage, everybody in the audience becomes completely obsessed with it and they all follow the, the making of it. But, of course, in the play, it's a sort of essential character thing that, you know, the man cannot stand to watch the woman cook. And then everybody would eat it at half time. 
Kerry Mulligan's spaghetti bolognese is really good. There's yeah. a, I mean, I've been round in the interval. Because <laughs> yeah, it's only in Act One they make it. And if I was peckish, I'd go round while they were in their dressing rooms and I'd have a little bit of her spaghetti bolognese. Did it change uh, during the run, as oh, far yeah. as you know? She got very, very accomplished. But Kerry's a very serious actress and she took the making of the spaghetti bolognese extremely seriously. When you were writing it, and this is one of those annoying questions about process, did the idea of this, I don't know if you'd call it a device, of the cookery going on, come very early on? Yeah. Because that would give a, a focus to what else was going on in the relationship? Uh, completely that. I mean, the play is really about, you know, the two Britons. It was at the time, it was written at the time that, you know, the entrepreneurial class had a terrible kind of beef. They were complaining that nobody valued them and that, you know, Thatcherism was not just a philosophy that was rampant in the country. It was also, oh, we're not properly appreciated. Nobody understands entrepreneurs. Nobody appreciates entrepreneurs. And then there were people who were leaving private industry because they were sort of, or private enterprise because they were disgusted by it. And they, they chose to work in public service. And these were really becoming two Britons that were completely, you know, unable to co communicate with each other. And the interesting thing was, you know, when Michael Gambon and Leah Williams played it in London, yes, of course, you expect the National Theatre audience to be on Leah's side because an awful lot of them are, you know, doctors or... Working. I should also say that, given we're sitting in a restaurant, the, Michael, the character Michael Gambon was playing and played by others is a restaurateur, isn't Yeah, he? he is a restaurateur. A, a sort of Terence Conran, although you yeah, mentioned Terence Conran to, be, to avoid him being accused of being Terence Conran. It was much more that I'd met Nicole, Nicole Fari, who is my wife, and I'd met her in 1991. And so she was running a business. Well, she wasn't running a business because actually she was wonderfully protected by French Connection, who owned her. Yeah. And so she was kept from what, you know, you might call the rougher side of the business. In other words, the, the real hard money side. But generally, writers don't spend a lot of time with business people. And suddenly, I was spending a lot of time with business people. I was, I was spending a lot of time with people either in the fashion industry or in the restaurant business or in other retail business. You know, I learned a lot about retail, not through Nicole directly, but through the people that Nicole knew and, and, and mixed with. And of course, they were fascinating to me because their, their values were so completely different from the thing I was used to. But what was interesting was when we went to New York, I thought, oh, well, of course, the Broadway audience will side with Michael Gambon because it's the city of the entrepreneurs. Far from it, you know, Leah Williams's speeches about, you know, the lack of interest in the common good were applauded by the Broadway audience. I went, oh my goodness me, this is as real a divide in America. You just hear much less about it. And uh, do you get to this date, because I assume there are productions of Skylight all over the world yeah. at various times. There are. It's, uh, it's sort of the play of mine that's most done simply because it's, it's very cheap to put on. You know, you only, you only need three actors and one set. And also the situation that it's in of the man revisiting a, an old love and, you know, still wanting her validation, so to speak, is such a universal... And th there was something about it that caught the public imagination. Ah, you, your duck shoe buns. They are tiny, but ah, I think not. pack a punch. The sea bass. Thank you. So, David, the Noble Rock actually grew out of a, a wine magazine. 
and they're serious about their wine. So I don't know if you're drinking at lunchtime, but I'm, I'm going to drink at this lunchtime because I'm at Noble Rock. For okay. Lunch. So, James, what have we got? So, this is um, Chablis. So he's a husband and wife team who are making part of like a vanguard of um, new styles of uh, sort of Chablis, but done in a very old way. So, using mm. old oak barrels. So, Chablis, you've got this lovely mineral, sort of like crystalline energy to the wines, but then the old oak gives this lovely sort of texture. Absolutely. Thank you. So you, your duck liver shoe bun is giving you pleasure. You just yeah, um, you fake, just pull one fake, of those faces. Faking orgasm. Yeah. Have you ever walked out of productions? Actors always know if you're in. They just do. And um, I remember going to a particularly trying play where I was sitting by chance, and this was pure chance. I was sitting next to Carol Churchill and Tom Stoppard and me, right? The three of us were all in the row. <laughs> we all looked did at somebody, each... Did somebody arrange this purposefully no, no, as a it just was we all wanted to see this play. Right. And at half-term, Tom turned to me and said, I don't think we can walk out of this one, don't <laughs> And he said to me, when my son talks about hating theatre, this is the kind of play which makes you hate theatre. And I said, I know exactly what you mean. But the three of us sat there grim-faced grim throughout the whole thing, because you can't. It's not fair. And then, you know, I've had some of the greatest evenings of my life in the theatre as well. And it's just a lottery. As we, as we talk, things are apparently opening back up and up. Uh, is there a part of you that's relishing the thought, now I can return? Yeah. I think it was Thomas Ostermeyer, the Berlin director, who said, Stream theatre is methadone as opposed to the real heroin. And it, that, that, I think, was a beautiful way of putting it, actually. It's sort of something to get you off theatre, but it's not real theatre. And I, I do... Did you watch any stream productions during Blood I Hell? did. I watched and helped pay for a few because, like everybody, I felt some responsibility to an art form that's given me so much. And so, you know, Sam Mendes did this absolutely brilliant thing of starting a fund <clears throat> where he raised, I think, between three and five million pounds, a huge sum of money to help freelancers during it. But also, if anybody wrote to me saying, I'm going to stream this production or that production, will you sponsor it? Of course I sponsored it because you just have to keep things going, don't you? Indeed. When, when you get yourself to Cambridge, was it with a view of, well, now I can do lots of drama or were you no I was, it was the movies there was a strong sense in the 60s that it was the art form and that it was also at the sort of cutting edge of European thought you couldn't talk about Camus or Sartre or those people without talking about what happened in the cinema it was central in a way that I, I don't suppose it's ever been central since at Cambridge, I ran the Film Society because it was films, films, films. As well as Hitchcock, did you manage to get any other big names? Come Michael on. Winner. How was he? He walked into the hall, which I'm afraid to say had been packed for Alfred Hitchcock. And then the next week, it was Michael Winner. He walked into the hall and he turned around to me and he said, I've had more at the Hendon Jewish fraternity. <laughs> I, he once rang me and said, David, I'm ringing because... Um, I want to buy the film rights to Skylight. I want to do it as a film. I said, they're not available, Michael. I've, I've, I've turned everybody down and I don't want to film at Skylight. He said, Secret Rapture? I said, no, Michael. I, you know, I, 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 I don't want to sell that either. Pravda? Like that. 
I kind of go, this isn't a barrel. You know, there's nothing sort of... <laughs> Work his know, way through your back catalogue. Sort of schmutter merchant. <laughs> kind of going, oh, well, you know, you want cardigans? I'll get you cardigans. Trousers? You want trousers? And he would have made anything. If I'd given him the rights to anything, he would have gone off and made it. And it just... There was an attitude there that was just... I thought, hilarious. Did you turn him down because the idea of a winner version of one of your plays was just something you couldn't contemplate? I think I, as now he is dead, I can safely say yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch. Gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time, but in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash outtolunch. That's betterhelp.com slash outtolunch. You set up a, or was involved in the setting up a theatre company. Is it Portable? Was yeah. the original? Was that seen as a stepping stone in your mind to to writing film? Yeah. At, at that point, no, I you... wasn't a writer. I had no idea that I was going to be a writer until we were a play short, and we had been let down by a writer who was due to deliver a play to us on Monday, and on Wednesday he said he wasn't going to. So we had to have something to rehearse. So I wrote a one act play which was horrible, but the actors could speak the dialogue. When they were given the dialogue, you could tell the actors just went, I can say this, this is fine. How Brophy made good. Yeah. Um, which you've described as a satire on the absurdity of, the, of left-wing self-regard. Yeah. I mean, it could be said that you kind of laid out your stall right there yeah. for the entirety of a career that was to follow. What nobody can remember about the 60s is that we were full of contempt. You know, we were absolutely full of contempt. And the organised left seemed to us to live in fantasy land. And so we were as much against that as we were against the traditional establishment elitist right, you know? Yes, main courses are arriving. So you've got the rabbit cooked uh, in rosé with braised vegetables. Um, there's another wine heading our way, and I've got the lamb chops with ratatouille and olives. Um, so the next wine that you're drinking, so you're heading a little bit further south uh, into Beaujolais. So this is um, Justin de Trave. He's only um, four vintages old. He's the son of uh, one of my favourite and one of the greatest Beaujolais winemakers. Fleury, out of all the villages, is known as being the most floral and elegant. Um, and Justin's wine really sort of display that. Enjoy. Thank you. One of the things which has been always been striking is the level of research that goes into your work. Yeah. Did that start early? I'm not crazy to be a journalist, but I'd love to be a reporter. 
And I find the privilege of going into people's lives and talking to them about them, it's just completely wonderful and it's completely fascinating. And the things people say to you, it's always been the most enjoyable part of the whole business. So I've spent my time embedded in various... I was embedded in Clapham Police Station once for a couple of weeks. That was completely riveting. When you wrote Racing Demon, you went and hung out with a load of Church of England vicars, didn't you? exactly. Who, despite my atheism, as a reporter, I came to have a very deep love of the kind of inner-city vicar and their role as the social services that the social services weren't, which is really what your play was about. Yeah. Yeah, these people were really doing the job. You'd see this Church of England vicar who was helping people fill in forms to get a stove because they couldn't understand the local council bureaucracy. They're just plugging the work that nobody else is willing to do. Their version of Christianity, which is very easy to mock, because, of course, they never mentioned Jesus, to me, they were heroes. Michael Billington once described you as the nation's moral watchdog. Yeah, ridiculous. Is it? Uh, Billington being the, the former great theatre critic of The Guardian. Yeah, uh, the I mean, it's very kind of him to say that, but it's not true, is it? I think you could talk to the whole country from the theatre in the 20th century. I don't see anyone doing it in the 21st. In other words, it may be the culture that's changed or maybe it's the theatre that changed, but that excitement that you had with John Osborne, Samuel Beckett, you're entering the bloodstream with theatre. It doesn't feel that way now. You know, there are still people writing wonderful plays. Jess Butterworth writes wonderful... Probably so the, most Jerusalem famous, is... the most famous play of the 21st century is Jerusalem. But if you mention that title to a non-theatre-goer, they've never heard of it. If you mention the title Look Back in Anger to a non-theatre-goer, they've heard of it. And I think that sense that the theatre is somewhere from which you can somehow radiate out into everything... I think that's television now, isn't it? But had they heard of Look Look Back in Anger because it got a film adaptation? People felt Um, a shift in the culture, and I think it's a long time since there's been a cultural shift on that scale. And so if you're, say, Steve McQueen, you want to make small acts for television to to reach people. In 1978, you did something I find extraordinary for a writer, which is you wrote about the same subject twice, extraordinarily successful both times. So Plenty oh. is about a, a woman who's been a secret agent in the war and is now trying to live with the idea of the betrayal thereafter of all the values everybody was fighting for. If that's a terrible praise of your play, I apologise. The same year, Licking Hitler is on TV um, and is roughly, unless you're going to shout at me, similar territory. It is. And that gets an audience of 8 million. Yeah. And what you have said is, that's when you're really reaching people. Hmm. And that's 78. And I, I, I mean, obviously, Plenty went on to have this enormous life because it became a film with Meryl Streep and Charles Dance. You can hear that episode in our archive um, where he talks about working with Meryl. Um, Charles? Yeah. He didn't have a great time. Interesting listening. Okay. <laughs> Evelyn Waugh said a writer only has one subject. If they're lucky, they have two. He said, but occasionally you get a freak subject. But he said, basically, you're going back to the same subject over and over and over. And I think that, I think it's true. You, you ring the same bell over and over. Have you rung the same bell over yeah. and over? And are you very happy with that? I just know it's my subject and it's what I'm sort of landed with, which is, are you at peace with living how you live? 
you haven't stopped working because you can't retire from yourself, can you? No, and I'd be horrified to stop working. You have an office near yeah. the Heath and yeah. spend all that time by yourself very yeah. happily? Very, very happily. And that's been my life for so long that lockdown was pretty much... Business as usual. <laughs> I did. Uh, did a number of projects emerge from lockdown? Yeah, the things I've been writing. And uh, it's harder at the moment to get things done. It's very, very difficult to get things done because there's a bloody great queue of things that were waiting to be done before the lockdown, both in the theatre and in television. So they say we can't take any more, we're too busy, we've got this. Anyway, at my point in life, getting them done is secondary to writing them. There was a point when um, it felt a little like you were the house dramatist of the National. I sort it of was. Was that healthy for the rest of the dramatists? <laughs> Other people getting a look in? I think theatres are at their best when you sense that the artistic director is saying, this is somebody I really need you to listen to. Max Stafford Clark believed Carol Churchill was the most important writer of the day. Peter Hall believed Harold Pinter was the most important. And, and, and the theatre's work was kind of going, you must listen to this particular writer because this is really important. Now, Richard Eyre, for better or worse, anointed me in that role at the National Theatre. And of course, I'm not gonna say <laughs> that was a lousy policy. Why would I say that? On the contrary, I would love to feel that urgency again about theatre policy. But if you talk to dramaturgs now, or you talk to playwrights, they kind of say, that whole thing of voice of a generation is gone you now have to listen to 12 voices. And you diversity is the thing in the theatre, in every sense. And I know a lot of people listening to this will go, yes, quite right. Quite right. Exactly. But Lots of people will like that. You know, I've just written this book, We Travelled. The thing that I return to over and over is that the writer may be ahead of the audience. And if they are ahead, then the Twitter response, which is... I don't like this, it's new, it's horrible, I don't want to hear this, which is the response that greeted Waiting for Godot, or it's the response that reached Look Back in Anger, or it greeted Saved, Birthday Party, you know, which we would now regard as the great plays of the 20th century, which were all greeted with horror. Actually, the idea that the job of the artist is not to speak from inside the audience, but actually to be out in front of the audience, articulating something they only obscurely feel that they know, a writer doesn't reinforce the common wisdom. What's the flaming point? I don't need to go to another place. So is, that, is that the point of the book, to say, listen to the voices and let, yeah. let individual voices Yeah, the people that I admire, you know, I write, in the, I write in the book about Joan Didion and I wrote about Lee Miller and I write about Louis Mal and I wrote about Joe Papp. You know, Joe Papp was trying in the 1980s to make a theatre based on black writers and Hispanic writers. It's heroically against the tide. The best stuff is going to be against the tide. And yet nobody seems to understand that anymore. They just want to say, oh, go with the tide. I think what would be said back is that there, for so many years, decades, there was a hegemony of a certain kind yeah. of establishment, of which... Obviously, David, yeah. the courtesy of Cambridge, of course. the National Theatre, even course. the Royal Court, however scrappy it might have been, you were a part. Yeah. And that uh, other voices, isolated voices, even just women, um, 
and I say even just women because that's half the population, yeah. were excluded from. Yeah. And that the the way that the, the debate has moved now may frustrate what you're saying, but is giving access to the, the people thing, from the, different backgrounds. The, the thing I particularly object to is that this awful phrase when the people say, we've got an Afghan writer, so we'll hear a different story. Or we've got a Nigerian writer, we'll hear a different story. And you want to say, is art just memory? Doesn't the Nigerian, if they want to, have a right to write about Cuba? If they want to write about Peru, don't they have the right to write about Peru? They don't have to write about Nigeria. They don't have to write from memory. They can also write from imagination. And so, yes, the scandal is that so few people have access to being published, being performed, you know, being filmed, that so many similar people from similar backgrounds dominate the output. But once the output is there, then you have to argue for the autonomy of the imagination. And that nobody talks about anymore. The autonomy of the imagination, absolutely. But maybe the Nigerian writer hasn't even had the chance to write about the Nigerian experience before they get into the Cuban. But you're I'm right. I'm wholly 100% in favour of us enabling more and more people to have access. That is, in that sense, diversity is completely wonderful. Once they have access, they have the right to write about whatever they want. And to say to people in advance, welcome in, you're Syrian, please tell us about Syria, mm -hmm. is not to understand what art is. They have a right to write about anything they like. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You're also a director. Do you like that part of it when you uh, love it. get in the room with the actors? I love the actors. I'm fascinated by what they tell you about your work. You know, every day I get up and today I go, oh, today I'm directing Christopher Walken, or I'm directing Winona Ryder today, or I'm directing Rafe Fiennes today, or I'm directing Helena Bonham Carter today. You know, I mean, it was just paradise. How is that when you're telling them what you what what reading you want no, to the line, or do you no, let them do it? No, I don't. But it can get a bit tough. It can get tense. I think that directing the star is the really difficult thing to do, and the reason is not to do with ego, but it's to do with the fact that the star offers you so many possibilities. It's really hard to direct the great ones because everything they do is plausible. Everything Judy Dench does, you go, oh, well, that's completely wonderful. And, it, and you lose your orientation. Except you have to make a choice, and that's you your job. You have to as make the a director. choice, and that's the job. And is that also one of the reasons why you've returned to certain actors time and time again? Yeah. Because you have a shared language with them. Yeah. I mean, Rafe finds we just know each other inside out. The last November, I shot a film of Beat the Devil, which was my monologue about COVID. And we shot the film. And, you know, at the end of a take, Rafe would turn to me and say, I know what you're thinking. I'll do it again. And was it what you were thinking? Yeah. 
I have to ask one question about Warwicker, which did sort of occur to me. Bill Nye keeps getting to snog women 20 years his junior. If you haven't seen the Warwicker trilogy, it's kind of like the Bourne identity, the Bourne franchise without yeah. any punching, yeah. in a way, because it's about a... a, no, a British, no guns. No guns. A secret agent no who has to go wandering all over the world and back again. It's about corruption at the heart of the establishment and it's beautifully understated at every point with little bits of statecraft thrown in. It also feels, I don't know if it's fair to say, a bit of a love letter to Le Carre at certain times. I'll tell you a very funny story. If go you on. Okay, so I'd written page eight. Page eight was the first. The first one about MI5. And David Cornwall, John Le Carre, lives very near me in Hampstead. Lovely man, talk to him a lot, very friendly. We see each other in the local Chinese. Goldfish. I know Goldfish. And... Chinese to the great literaries. Anyway, he said, you know, he said, what are you up to, right? <laughs> and I was in quite a good mood, so I said, well, I've just written a play about MI5, all right? And he lo he's looking at me. I said, really? He's, I, I, I said, yeah, I can send you the film script if you like. He said, you can send it to me, but I shall be withering. <laughs> Did you and was he? No, I never sent it to him. I didn't dare, and he never said a word to me. Bill Nye snogging Rachel Vice. Yeah, disgusting, isn't it? <laughs> it's so wrong and so typically male. Perfect answer, because I have absolutely no supplementaries for that one. We will push on to dessert, but David here, can I just say thank you for letting me take you out to lunch? Thank you very much. What a pleasure. It's all mine. Some of us had laid off the vino over lockdown, so it was wonderful for us to try some expertly chosen glasses of the good stuff at Noble Rot in Soho as it reopened its doors. Thank you to everyone there for having us and for the marvellous food. Now listen up. Do follow us so that you can hear many more fabulous chats as they come down the pipeline. And please share this with friends, families, even foes, and ask them to follow too. Comment, give us five stars, you know it makes sense. It really does help us to make more. Plus, you can subscribe for £1.79 a month via the Apple app and get all this loveliness ad-free, as well as an exclusive episode once a month just for subscribers, in which I catch up with a previous guest over the cheese course. What is not to like? Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Next time, it's actor, comedian and ventriloquist Nina Conti and her monkey. So it was just monkey, like, going at it on a pint glass, and me kind of... <laughs> Being like, outraged or trying well, to stop him. Part outraged, but part... It's just like an affable zookeeper, like, he'll do this. It won't last long, you know. Sorry about this. Mm -hmm.